when we're looking at um, Israel, you might say, okay, it's all talking about this land and God's going to build this land. Um, Israel, um, and I would even say the Bible, it's all, it's all about God's heart. It's all about how God works. It's all about how God functions with people. The Bible is not a Bible about us, how we're supposed to behave, how we're supposed to do this and how we're supposed to do that. The Bible is about God, about a revelation of what makes us alive. So if there's 10 commandments that are given, the 10 commandments are given, it's like, I want to make people alive. And then we get to look at the Bible and say, oh, that's what God, how we function. And that's what God desires. So when you get 60% of the Bible is narrative, that means it's, it's stories. Uh, well, what do you do in these stories? You see how God is working. You see how God functions. You see his character. You see what he says. You see what is important to God. So when we start talking about Israel, it's like, you go, I'm going to make a covenant with Israel. And as he's making this covenant with Israel, you see people that are in the works. But as you see people in the works, the direction is really to see God's hand in the process of working with the people. So last week, what did we talk about? We talked about Judges. And uh, I think that you guys would agree it's a horror book. <laughs> Remember the last story? Yeah, it's just like, oh my goodness, what a complete disaster. But then you look at Joshua, and Joshua is like, oh my goodness, things are going really, really well. Things are going good. What's the difference between Joshua and what's the difference between Judges? What's the difference between Ruth? What's the difference? What is taking place? What is God wanting? What is God demanding? What is God asking for? Why do we got a depressing book and why do we not have a depressing book? Well, I'll just give you kind of a review on the book of Judges. You know, in the book of Judges, I will tell you that it's 300 years of absolute, you know, of horror, destruction, difficulties in the last story, wiping out a complete tire tribe of Benjamin. I mean, all those things. Why did this happen? Judges 17. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Well, Joshua is not a book that was horrible. Why? Maybe Joshua didn't do what was right in his own eyes. Maybe Joshua wasn't the one that was making the decisions. Maybe Joshua said, God, you tell me what you want me to do and I'll submit to it. Is that what you saw in the book of Judges? That's not what you saw in the book of Judges. And then you see a horror book. Judges 18, in those days there's no king in Israel. This is the theme. In those days the tribe of the Danites was seeking an inheritance for themselves to live in. Are they asking about God at all? Are they um, consulting God in what they do? No, you just do what is right in your own eyes. There's no king. You just keep on doing it. You keep on doing it. You keep on doing it. Judges 19, now it came about in those days when there was no king in Israel. And then the very last verse, which is the theme of the entire book, is the same line. Judges 21, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You look at a book that is so old, and then you look at the modern-day society, and what do you see? Let's just do what is right in our own eyes. Who needs God? I mean, if our heart says it, why wouldn't we do it? If I'm a male and attracted to a male, and this is right in my eyes, what's the problem with it? Uh, if, you know, if I do not want to have this baby, and there's an option to get rid of the baby, and it's legal... Where, what's, what's, what's the problem with that? What's, what's the, the problem with that? The book of Judges is the same thing that we're dealing with even as specifically today. So what's the Bible screaming at? Don't do what is right in your own eyes. Go to God. 
consult him. Understand what's in his mind. Understand what is in your heart. And through the Old Testament, you look at these stories, all of a sudden you're going to see, oh, this is why we need to live this way. This is why God is speaking this way. This is why God is asking this from me because he's in it for my best interest. That's what the Bible's about. He's in it to make me alive. He's in it to make my family alive. He's in it to make my country alive. And as soon as the country goes towards the Word of God and the foundation of the Word of God, what's going to take place? If you obey it to a T, the strength, the beauty, the majesty, and the power our country would have if we just took the Word of God and said, God, just tell me what to do, and we submit and we do it. That's what the Old Testament is about. So, book of Judges is tough. We see the beautiful book of Ruth that saves the judges but now we're going to move into 1 Samuel. Look at 1 Samuel 1, or 2, 35. I will rise up for myself a faithful priest who will do what? Who will do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. Are you going to see the world change? <laughs> 1 Samuel, you're going to see the world change. You see the book of Judges and it is just garbage. All of a sudden, the world's going to change. But what access is it going to change on? This one person, I will raise myself a priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his house and he will minister before my anointed one always. Was this Joshua's same attitude? Was Joshua's same attitude? Was this Moses' same attitude? It was Moses' same attitude. And when leaders become in place and this is their focus, what's going to happen? The world is going to change around them. And I'll even tell you that the Bible even shifts gears when individuals say, this is what I'm going to do. God, please, I want nothing else besides you. And God smiles and says, all right, I'm going to change the world. Okay, I'll change the world. So we see Samuel. And as we see Samuel, you definitely have stories. Hannah was Samuel's mother, and she cannot have a child. And she went into the temple in Shiloh, and when she went to the temple of Shiloh, she was pleading for God, God, please, 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 please give me a child. And Eli, who was a priest at that time, walked up to her and says, are you drunk? What? And he even says in the, the scripture that her soul was being poured out. He looks at her and says, are you drunk? He says, no, I'm not drunk, I'm, I'm barren. And what does Eli say? You'll be with child. And what does Hannah say? Well, I'll give that child to God. She then conceives. She gives the child to God after four years old and nursing the child. Gives the child to God by giving, placing him in the temple to be trained under Eli. But what is the personality of Samuel? The personality of Samuel is what God says I need to listen to. He was at a young age and he was sleeping. And as he was sleeping, he heard this voice. And as he heard this voice, he thought it was Eli. He jumped up, and after he jumped up, he went and said, Eli, Eli, are you talking to me? He said, no, I'm not talking to you. He went back to sleep. He heard a voice again. Eli, Eli, are you talking to me? No, I'm not, ta- I'm not talking to you. And then after a third time, what takes place? Eli says, say these words, Samuel, speak, for I am listening, and then let God tell you what he wants to say. So sure enough, what took place is Samuel got a report directly from God. As Samuel got this report, he's like, uh, I don't know if I really want to report this. And the reason why he didn't want to report it is because Eli had some sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and these guys were not necessarily good guys. In fact, they were horrific guys. 
And what did Eli or Samuel report? He report judgment on them. He didn't want to tell that to the priest. He didn't want to tell that to Eli. But he's not going to do what's right in his own eyes. What's he going to do? He's going to do what is right in God's eyes, no matter what the price was. First Samuel two eleven says this. Then Elkanah went to his home of Ramah, but the boy ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. You ever seen that verse and really looked into it? Who did Eli minister to? Did he minister to Eli, or, did he, uh, or who did Samuel minister to? Did he minister to Eli? No. He ministered to the Lord. What's the definition of minister? Minister means one who performs religious functions in a Christian church. That's just the definition of minister. One who performs religious functions in a church. Uh, you minister to what? I'm a minister. I minister to you. But Samuel did something different. He ministered specifically to the Lord. I think the Lord says, ah, now I'm going to change the world. Because this is the heart that's going to change the world. My ministry is not even going to be for you. My ministry is going to be for the Lord. And he's the one I'm going to minister to you. What do you mean by that? We minister to the Lord. I'll tell you, one who performs religious functions to God rather than to even man. Religious functions like what? Religious functions like getting on your knees and saying, God, it's just you and me. Nobody else sees me. When I preach, everybody sees me. <laughs> it's like, hey, I'm doing ministry. Isn't this really, really good? But nobody sees me get on my knees. Nobody sees me in the closet. Nobody sees me reading my Bible when I'm not supposed to, or when, when nobody's around. See, what happens is there is religious functionings that is specifically, it's just me and God. I have a quote that I will always just hang on to, that will always not torment me, but will always drive me. And the quote is, a pastor is what he is on his knees and nothing else. Period. Nothing else. And I think that, whoa, whoa, whoa I'm doing ministry. Things are working. Things are good. Samuel wasn't that kind of person. What Samuel does is, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to minister to the Lord just like Joshua. I am going to conquer a city, and where am I going to get my information? Where am I going to get my plans? Where am I going to get my strategy? I'm going to minister only specific to the Lord. And then all of a sudden he walks up to Jericho and he does what? He walks around it seven times and blows his horn? I mean, that's not a military success. But yet it was God's answer to destroying the city. Well, where did he get that? He's moving towards even the quiet business. Quiet business where he's isolating himself and saying, I want nothing but you, God. Ezekiel 44, 15. But the, Le but the Levitical priesthood, the sons of Zodok, who kept charge of my sanctuary, when the sons of Israel went astray from me, shall come near me. And to do what? To minister to me, and they shall stand before me to offer what is fat and blood, declares the Lord. Again, a passage that I will minister to the Lord. And then we have 1 Samuel 2.21, and the boy Samuel grew strong before the Lord. The person that ministers to the Lord will get God's heart, God's mind, God's soul. The person who steps back 
I mean, this is going to sound crazy, but the person who steps back from ministry of what's taking place and moves towards, I'm going to be heavy in ministry to the Lord, reading my Bible, you get the seven disciplines, reading my Bible, prayer, attend church, give when nobody else knows, this is the person that is going to move. This is the person that is going to be strong. This is the person that is going to change the world. So let's look at, continue to look at Samuel. Samuel 8, 6, talking about his life. Remember that is his heart because we're definitely going to get back to it. First Samuel 8, 6 says, But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel, so he prayed to the Lord. Give us a king to lead us. I don't necessarily want, this is the people that are talking, I don't necessarily want to have my devotion between me and God. I mean, that was the plan. That was the plan. Just, just me and God. That was Joshua's idea. That was Moses. It was just Abraham and God. That was it. And so we tried it in the book of Judges, and everybody's like, no, we just got to do what we want. They just left God. They left that quiet time. They left that solitude. And they got to the point that just give us a king. We got to see somebody. We got to touch somebody. We can't go into a room all by ourselves and pray to, to God because he might not listen. He might not know. So just give us a king that will lead us. This displeased Samuel, so what did he do? <laughs> he goes to the quiet place and says, all right, Lord, what do I do? Here's the Lord's response. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done that for the day that I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over you will do to them. And then he gives us a list. You want a human being that you want to rule you? I'll tell you, you're going to have a lot of flesh in it. And he gives us a list of all the things that the king is going to specifically do to him. But where is this passage going? God has an idea. <laughs> What's his idea? Remember what the Old Testament's about? It's all about Jesus Christ. I'll give you somebody. I will give you somebody that you can see, that you can feel, that you can touch, and that you can understand, and you will see love, humility, kindness. You will see a life completely laid down, which is found in Jesus Christ. You will see your King of kings and your Lord of lords. And what do we do when Jesus came? We rejected him. <laughs> you see that? We re rejected him. So what we do is we see him, but it's like, well, this isn't the king that we want, and then we reject them. But still, what do we do today? What should be the drive of the church today? What should be the center of the church in moving today is to still look back 2,000 years, not even to look forward. People talk about revival, and I almost got myself in trouble because people talk about revival on this prayer summit, that I, 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 not prayer summit, but leadership group that I went to. And it's like, we got to pray for revival, and, and we got to move for revival. Revival, 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 revival. But one thing was missing in the conversation. Don't look forward. <laughs> look back 2,000 years. And pick up the thing that took place 2,000 years. And when you pick that thing up, and you put it forward, and pray underneath it, and send it forward, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, then revival is going to take place. See, what we can do is we can often reject the king just like Many other people rejected the king when he's on earth. Is we ministry, 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 when God might just be saying, as Samuel did, just go into the quiet hours. Go into the quiet. Open up the Bible and see what this king of kings and lord of lords has done and see what you should do with it. 
pick it up and tell it to every person you come in contact with. Pick it up and preach it from the pulpit. Pick it up and let it drive a revival, because if a revival is ever going to take place, according to history, it's going to take place on the beautiful gospel of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This passage says, well, you know, they didn't reject you, Samuel. They rejected me. Therefore, I will give you a king, but I have a purpose in giving you a king. The purpose in giving you a king is a purpose of giving you Jesus for the purpose of looking back now from our day, 2,000 years, and holding on to it and letting this drive our lives. But it's still the center of going back in the quiet to find him, going back in the quiet of meditating on him, going back in the quiet of reading the word and understanding him. 1 Samuel 9 says, And he had a son whose name was Saul. There comes a king. Even Samuel got a little distracted when it comes to the king. He says, all right, you want a king? I'm going to get one. Well, what are you going to find when you find a king? You're going to have to find a good soldier. You're going to have to find a strong man. You're going to have to find somebody that will lead you to God. Somebody that will lead you to success. Therefore, found this person named Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people. In other words, he was it. Of Israel, more handsome than he was. For his, they even give a description of his shoulders. His shoulders were upward. He was taller than any other people. Oh my goodness, we have found somebody that will lead you. But remember who conquered the armies in Joshua? Remember the conversation that took place with Moses? <laughs> Moses was the most strongest person that had ever walked on this earth when it comes to leading the people out. He had an army, he had the position. He had the intelligence. He had absolutely everything, but God took him out and brought him to the wilderness. So he took him and brought him to the wilderness. What did God do to him? He took away his education. He took away his military. He took away absolutely everything. And the burning bush comes up. And, and what's Moses' words? <laughs> Who am I? <laughs> they should have been, where were you 40 years ago? I had it in me, but I don't have it anymore. And then you get the passage, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. You're going to get in trouble. Saying, let's go find the strongest man on earth. Because the strongest man on earth doesn't necessarily move into a military strategy without his own arms. Moves into a military strategy with what? Thinking, uh, or with, with the power of God, he moves into a military strategy with, it, with his own arms. And they think, well, this would be a great king. And what happens in Saul's life, and you will see Saul be very powerful, conquers many armies, he goes to the battle against Jabesh Gilead. Do I, have a, do I have a slide in regards to Jabesh Gilead? Remember Jabesh Gilead, tribe of Benjamin? Jabesh Gilead didn't show up when they destroyed the tribe of Benjamin. They grabbed the virgins from Jabesh Gilead and they brought them down to Benjamin to rebuild the tribe. Well, you have um, King Saul as a Benjamite. What's he going to do? He's going to protect Jabesh Gilead because that's where the, the history's at. First thing he does, he goes against Jabesh Gilead, battle of Michmash, battle defeats Moab, he defeats Edom, Zodoth. The Philistines, he's successful. He's good. He answered God's call, and he's doing God's mission. But remember what, whose battle it is. You better continue to do God's battle because God might say, I want you to walk around a city instead of go into a city. You've got to be with God in quiet. You've got to be with God in silence. You've got to be with God and understand what he's going to say to do to his people. You can't just do it. Why? Because God's the one that fights the army. Exodus 14, 14, the Lord will fight for you and you will be silent. You tell a military commander that. <laughs> you tell a military commander that do less training and more focus before God 
Well, if you want God to fight that army, you have to do that. But God says he's going to fight the army all the way through the Old Testament. Second Chronicles 20, you will, not fight, you will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf in Judah and Jerusalem. Oh, my son, who's fighting the battle? God is fighting the battle. But how do you know the strategies of God? How do you know the mission of God? How do you know the desires of God? You don't find that on the battlefield. You find it in the silent room. Deuteronomy 20, for the Lord your God is he who will go and fight for you against the enemies to give you victory. Deuteronomy 20, for the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against the enemies to give you victory. Oh, I just repeated that one. Psalms 33, 17, a horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite of all of its strength, it cannot save. The fight is not in the horse. The fight is where? It's in the power of God. Psalms 147, his pleasures is not the strength of a horse nor the delight in the legs of a man, but delights in the power of his name. And is there going to be somebody that's going to step back into the quiet room, like Samuel, step back in the quiet room and say, God, what do you want? How do you do it? I commit my life to prayer. I commit my life to work, but I will not put work over prayer. I commit my life to the reading of your word because I want to understand, because you might have strategies that are not from my mind, and your thoughts are not my thoughts, but I'll commit my dedicate and dedicate completely to this. Do you see how important it is to have that quiet time, <laughs> to have that quiet hour? Do you see how important it is to minister to the Lord? It's extremely important for Saul. Saul got a little bit distracted. And let me tell you kind of a bad Gideon story. Remember the story of Gideon? Gideon had an army to fight an extreme army. But as he's going to fight this extreme army, God did something. He said, tell everybody to go home if they're afraid. And then all of a sudden, Gideon lost his army. He lost half of his army. And they go down to the waters getting ready to attack. They drink like dogs, cuff the hands, and all of a sudden he lost more of his army to the point of having 300 people, and God says, all right, this is exactly where I want it because this is good strategy. Not good human strategy. It's just not. <laughs> you don't cut the army when you want to do human strategy, but it was good God's strategy. Well, God has another strategy all the way through Joshua. You see God's strategy? Well, God has another strategy with, Sam, or, um, with, um, with Saul. And so he's going to do this all, and I'll tell you that when pressure arises, you're going to see if you're anchored into God or if you're anchored into yourself. Watch what takes place. First Samuel 10 Go down ahead of me in Gilgal. I will surely come down to you and to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. But you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are supposed to do. All right, who's in charge? Samuel's given directions to Saul. Samuel has his quiet hours and says, okay, we're going to fight. <laughs> we're going to have a bar, uh, an army at Gilgal, and it's going to be tough. It's going to be intense. The Philistines are going to come in, and we're going to fight, but don't worry. We don't fight our armies. Remember, God fights our armies. All we have to do is go into the direction of what God wants to do, and we'll be okay. Well, Samuel tells that to Saul and says, absolutely, that sounds like a great idea. So all of a sudden, he's sitting there at Gilgal, and um, the Philistines get bigger on day one. And they get bigger on day two. Remember how many days he's supposed to wait? He's supposed to wait seven days. Now, as their army and the Philistines get bigger and they start to restructure, I will tell you, it's going to get pretty intimidating for Saul. I have to wait, what, seven days? Extremely intimidating for his army, because what did his army do? They started going to the caves. <laughs> All of a sudden, the army and the Philistines started getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and his army starts getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Remember, it's a Gideon story. <laughs> He's getting right where God wants it. And Saul's like, this is not good. 
And God's saying, oh yeah, this is, this is good. Lose this army, let this army get big, and then whose name's going to be proclaimed? God's name's going to be proclaimed. Six days, seven days, after seven days, I'm supposed to light this altar, or the, the, uh, the priest Samuel's supposed to light this altar, and he's supposed to make a statement that God is with us, and it's seven days, and he is still not here. Eight days, okay, all of a sudden he's a day late. God is off. Now, if God is off, somebody's got to take control, right? <laughs> you ever had that happen to you? You know, things aren't going good in my life. God is off. God is not doing what he should be doing. Therefore, it's time to take control. I've now lost my army. That army is absolutely huge. God is off eight days. He's a day late. What does Saul do? Lights the, lights the altar. Lights the altar to say God's in control. God's all-powerful. One thing about kings is kings are not supposed to light the altar. What's supposed to happen is priests are supposed to light the altar. Guess who shows up right after he lights the altar? Let's read it. He waited seven days, a time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. We talked about that. He said, bring me the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offerings. Ooh, not good. Just as he had finished making the offering, Samuel arrived moments, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering, I mean, why would you want to fight an army with less men? I saw that they were scattering and that you did not come at the set time, and the Philistines started to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Somebody had to do something because God was dead. <laughs> God was not there. You've got to do what is right in your own eyes if God is not there. So what does he do? He does it. Of course, he gets the scolding from Samuel, but it's not the first time. There's another time that, Samuel, or that Saul says, you know what? I'm a Joshua, and we're going to be conquering, 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 and we're going to do, 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 do. But remember Joshua, he did it all with God. Well, Saul, watch what he does. Now go, attack the Malachites. God's given direction. And totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put them to death. Men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. This is your instructions from God. It's hard instructions. Saul, do it. Now, if he does it, blessings are going to take place. I mean, he doesn't even need a quiet hour before this. He's getting it right from Samuel. Take this. Go do it. First Samuel 15. But Saul and his army spared Agag. And the best of the sheep and the cattle and the fat and the calves and the lamb, everything that was good, somebody's doing what is right in their own eyes, these they were unfilling to destroy completely. But everything that was despised and weak, he totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. Samuel wasn't there. The word of the Lord came to him. I am grieved that I made Saul king because he has turned away from me and he has not carried out my instructions. That's why he is grieved. Samuel was troubled, and what did he do? He went to the quiet place again, because that's where Samuel exists, the quiet place. He cried out to the Lord, and he did it all night when everybody was asleep. You see the power that's in the world? It's under the quiet place. And Saul's thinking the power in the world is it's in the public place. Samuel goes right to the quiet place. I prayed all night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up, and he went to meet Saul. But he was told, Saul's gone to Carmel. Mount Carmel. There he set up a monument in his own honor, and he has turned and gone down to Gilgal. Oh, don't do that, Saul. 
who fights the battles? Who fights the battles? You can see the Old Testament, all the way through the Old Testament, the theme is who's going to fight the battle? And the answer is the battle belongs to the Lord. Are you in the quiet hours with him? Are you in the quiet hours with him? Because that's where you're going to get his mind. That's where you're going to get his heart. That's where you're going to get his power is in the quiet hours. That's why you get these are the seven basic disciplines of the Christian life because that is the area of strength. And in the Old Testament, we completely see it. But that was not the area of Saul's strength. The area of Saul's strength was in his hand. And then when he won the war, what did he do? He put a monument up there for who? Himself. And where was God? Oh, Saul fights the battles, not me, is what God said. First Samuel 15, the Samuel said to him, you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the, world, the word of the Lord has rejected, I'm sorry, and the Lord has rejected you as king of Israel. You know, we look at, and I know you guys know stories, so I can just, you know, venture out and tell some stories. But when you, when you look at um, Saul, you think, well, how bad was he? I mean, how big of mistakes did he make? What, how bad was he? In fact, let's compare him a little bit. King David, we're going to talk about this. A man after God's own heart committed adultery, murdered the person's wife, Bathsheba's wife, to protect his skin. Now let's compare the two. How bad was King Saul compared to that? Ooh, that's ugly. But do you know what's taking place? Is Saul is horrifically going a direction that is the opposite of God's. And David went a direction that was the opposite of God, and it literally shattered him. And when it shattered him, you see the most beautiful passage of God creating me a new heart. Where did he go when he was shattered? He went right down to the quiet place. And I will tell you that that's where you can get a man after your own heart is right there in that quiet place, right down to the quiet place, creating me a new heart, O God. Nobody's looking. He said to him and God, created me a new heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. But do you see where all the power is in the quiet place? I have rejected Saul as king because all the power is in his hands. So he thought, rather than God's, rather than God's hands. So the effects of the um, Old Testament, uh, I'll just tell you that this story has some effects on my life. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm going to continue um, to work with the story, but I, I do have some time to tell you a story about myself. <laughs> and stories that, um, um, I was reading the Old Testament, I read these passages, and I'll just tell you that these passages are really, really close to my heart. And the reason why they're close to my heart is because I'm a pastor. And as, as I'm a pastor, I get to do public things. And as I do public things, um, there's a God that's going to be running me, ruling me, and, or there's going to be me that's going to be running me or, or, or ruling me in those things. Well, God in my life put me through, uh, through a test, <laughs> um, a huge, huge test, and it was the time that I was feeling called into ministry. And when I was feeling called into ministry, I said, God, I don't want to go. And um, God says, well, I don't care what you want. <laughs> That's what took place because I had quiet time. I had a devotion. And I will tell you that when I went into devotion, I tell you that there was blood. And what I mean by blood is I fought God during my quiet time. He says, you know, no, God, this is, no, this is not good. This is not good. This is not good. This is not good. I wasn't fighting him in the field. I was fighting him in the quiet time. And in this quiet time, he's saying, I'm going to pull your quiet time away from you. And this is what I heard. I'm going to pull your quiet time away from you if you don't do exactly 
what I say. And those are the convictions of my heart. What I mean by pulling quiet time is that you either go and you either listen to me or, <laughs> or pff, live your own life, do what is right in your own eyes, and just enjoy it. Because you've got to make a move, and I'm telling you to make a move right now. So these are just convictions I had in my quiet time. And how am I going to have a quiet time if I say, okay, I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes, but continue to give me a quiet time. I tell you, it, it didn't happen. So I, I did, I stepped forward. And it was not here, it was at another church. 80 people were um, um, going to the church at the time. And as 80 people were going to the church, I would tell you that um, I had some fears. And you know what my fears were? My fears were, I don't think I'm going to be a good pastor. I was a logger, and I was a really good logger. But I'll tell you, my mind doesn't work. I don't like to read. I don't like to preach. I don't like to be in front of anybody. There was reasons, and I had a really good argument to God. I mean, I'm just telling you, I had a really good argument to God to say, you don't want me absolutely up there whatsoever. And as, as this was taking place, and I had those fears, these are the passages I was reading. It's like, you don't fight your battle anyway. You don't fight your battle anyway. God fights your battle. We just have to have just a quiet person just walk up there and speak, or wanting, you know, wanting to, to listen and wanting to hear those things. And I'll tell you that this had a real huge grip on me. And then sure enough, in my life, God took everything away from me. And when he took everything away from me, I was like, God, you're an amazing soldier, right? <laughs> I had a youth group that was taking place. I had a position that was taking place. I had a calling that was supposed to take place inside the position that I have. And then God wipes everything out from me. It's like, well, now, God, you, you don't know what you're doing. Because absolutely, you asked me to do something as, after you asked me to do something, I say yes, and then you say no to everything, and I lost my job as a youth pastor, just meaning my shift was changed. And, and I lost my church on Sunday morning because I had to work Sunday morning from the state of Oregon instead of that. And so after I looked at all this, I'm like, God, I have no idea what you're doing. And you just, I consistently got these Old Testament stories. Battle's not yours anyway. Just shut up and keep your devotions. And through my life, to make a short story faster and short, I ended up here in the D's office through a freak accident. And freak accident in the sense that my daughter went to preschool here, and Bob Thompson was associate here, and he just asked me to come in his office and say, hey, what's God doing in your life? My words were like, I have no idea what God is doing in my life. I do not understand. I feel like he wanted me to do something I can't do. And after he did that, he just took everything away from me. He said, you should talk to Pastor, Pastor D. So I, I go in the office and talk to Pastor D, and D's, I'll just tell you that D is a, um, 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 when he communicates, he just communicates black and white, nods his head, say, oh yeah, uh-huh, sure, sure. And I walk out the door and go, oh, good. <laughs> Not, I, I get to keep my quiet time, and I don't have to go into a public ministry, because I was concerned about, still concerned about with 80, with 80 people. And then um, after that, D says, well, I want you to, to, to plan a church. And I'll tell you, my heart was just broken. My heart was scared. I'm telling you that my mind was broken. My mind was scared. And I had fear to shaken in me like you will not even believe. And as you see this fear that was shaken in me, believe, it's, it's all about, is God going to do something? Is God going to fight the battles? Because I'm not supposed to. And I watched all these things take place. And the reason why I tell you that story is because it's the only thing that Joshua held on to. is a quiet time. This is just... You and me, God, let's survive this. It's the only thing that Moses held on to was a quiet time. Help me to survive this no matter what takes place because the battle's not mine. It's the only thing that Gideon held on to. God, my, my, my armies are completely wrong. I'm not incapable, but it's the only thing that he held on to. And I will tell you, as your pastor, 
that is the only thing that I hold on to. That's it. It's the only thing I hold on to. God fights all the battles, and am I quiet before the Lord? Or is it my hands that carry my strength? Is it my voice? Is it my power? The whole Testament doesn't say that. God fights all the battles. God fights all the wars. And he wants anybody's heart to be completely and entirely connected with him, and that's the only thing I can think of. You know, I try to study for my sermons, I try to do this, but he doesn't want any of that. He wants more of, is my heart connected with him? And I'm not, I have no arrogance in this whatsoever, but that's a question I always ask. Is my heart in line with God's heart because only battles are going to be fought? Saul was rejected as king because he had strong hands. He had broad shoulders. He had a good voice. He was the man for the job. But there is another man that was not rejected, and his name was King David, and he was called a man after God's own heart. So when you look at the Bible, when you study the Bible, you want to ask the question, am I somebody after God's own heart, or am I somebody successful? <laughs> those, are the, those are the two questions. Am I successful, or am I a man after God's own heart? And what are the qualifications of being a man after God's own heart? Well, for the next couple of weeks, we get a look at what a man after God's own heart looks like. But you have a, I think you guys have a paper that is written out here of what this person looks like. What does a person look like after a man of God's own heart? Because this is what I hang on to. This is what I push for. It's not an army. You just go after it. A person who wants nothing but God is somebody that's going to be a man after God's own heart. This somebody's going to be a woman after God's own heart. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Nothing else. This is all. Nobody's going to see it. It's all going to be in quiet hours. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Man after God's own heart is a person. A person after God's own heart is a person who sits in solitude before God. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters. He restores my soul. Man after God's own heart is a person who listens to instructions from God. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. A person who is confident in God is a person who is after God's own heart. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadows of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. A person after God's own heart is a person who finds a comfort in God. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. A person after God's own heart is one who is thankful for God. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I didn't do anything to prepare the table. You're the one that's done it in the presence of all my enemies. One who thrives at being used by God. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Let's do it. Let's go. A person who is focused on the kingdom of God is a person who is after God's own heart. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There's only two kinds of people in this world, and you can divide Christians in two different camps, and, and uh, one different camp that you can divide a person into, a Christian into, is those who are trying to get things um, from God. God, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. The other half is those who realize that they have everything in God and then meet with them. Two different camps. Try to get everything I can from God so my hands will be powerful, my voice will be powerful, my shoulders will be powerful. Give me, give me, give me, give me. Or everything that somebody has just completely realized, 
everything that they already have in God, and all they need to do is go to the quiet hours and pick it up. All they need to do is go to the quiet hours and pick it up. So when it comes to the story of Israel, this is the heartbeat of what Israel was built on. Because it was not built by man. It was built by who? It was built built by God. And as you can see in Samuel and not see in Saul, Israel was not built by the man that can accomplish everything. It was built by Samuel, a man who says, I'm just going to go into the quiet. And when I speak, it won't be a lot, but when I speak, it's going to come specifically from God because I'm going to get it from there and move it to the surface. And then next week we get to talk about King David. And what you're going to see is you're going to see, remember who the son of David was? Jesus. <laughs> Jesus called the son of David. In Acts, you see Paul mentioned he was a man after God's own heart. We'll ask that question, why? And I'll give you a little taste of it through just one passage that he wrote. But the entire book of Psalms does what? Displays his heart, his hunger, his passion, his desire. And what is there? God, give me you. Give me you. Give me you. Give me I don't need anything else. Just give me you. Give me you. Give me you. So the challenge would be, that would be my focus as an individual, but also be your focus as an individual, because if that's the way that he built Israel, that's the way he's going to build your family, and that's the way he's going to build, he's going to build you. Let's close in a word of prayer. God, we just thank you that you're the one that fights all the battles, that we don't have to have a wise mind, a sharp mind, we don't have to be even qualified, God. We can be broken people, God, before your throne, and you will use us to minister to the people around us. I just pray, God, that this would just be a focus in every single one of our hearts, that it would be a drive to meet you in the quiet hours, reading the Bible, praying, giving, serving, obeying, all those things in the quiet hours. I just pray, God, that we'll be motivated and driven towards that direction and that direction only. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.